Chapter Thirteen, Part Three of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Thirteen, Part Three. The two girls passed on to talk about themselves. Ursula told all about the high school and about her matriculation, bragging a little. She felt so poor here in this ugly place. Miss Schofield listened with brooding, handsome face, rather gloomy. "'Couldn't you have got to some better place than this?' she asked at length. "'I didn't know what it was like,' said Ursula, doubtfully. "'Ah,' said Miss Schofield, and she turned aside her head with a bitter motion. "'Is it as horrid as it seems?' asked Ursula, frowning lightly, in fear. "'It is,' said Miss Schofield bitterly. "'Ha! It is hateful!' Ursula's heart sank, seeing even Miss Schofield in the deadly bondage. "'It is Mr. Harvey,' said Maggie Schofield, breaking forth. "'I don't think I could live again in the big room. Mr. Brunt's voice and Mr. Harvey! Ah!' She turned aside her head with a deep hurt. Some things she could not bear. "'Is Mr. Harvey really horrid?' asked Ursula, venturing into her own dread. "'He—why, he's just a bully!' said Miss Schofield, raising her shamed dark eyes that flamed with tortured contempt. "'He's not bad as long as you keep in with him and refer to him and do everything in his way, but it's all so mean. It's just a question of fighting on both sides and those great louts.' She spoke with difficulty and with increased bitterness. She had evidently suffered. Her soul was raw with ignominy. Ursula suffered in response. "'But why is it so horrid?' she asked, helplessly. "'You can't do anything,' said Miss Schofield. "'He's against you on one side, and he sets the children against you on the other. The children are simply awful. You've got to make them do everything. Everything, everything has got to come out of you. Whatever they learn, you've got to force it into them, and that's how it is.' Ursula felt her heart fail inside her. Why must she grasp all this? Why must she force learning on fifty-five reluctant children, having all the time an ugly, rude jealousy behind her, ready to throw her to the mercy of the herd of children, who would like to rend her as a weaker representative of authority? A great dread of her task possessed her. She saw Mr. Brunt, Miss Harvey, Miss Schofield, all the school-teachers, drudging unwillingly at the graceless task of compelling many children into one disciplined mechanical set— reducing the whole set to an automatic state of obedience and attention, and then of commanding their acceptance of various pieces of knowledge. The first great task was to reduce sixty children to one state of mind, or being. This state must be produced automatically through the will of the teacher, and the will of the whole school authority, imposed upon the will of the children. The point was that the headmaster and the teachers should have one will and authority, which should bring the will of the children into accord. But the headmaster was narrow and exclusive. The will of the teachers could not agree with his. Their separate wills refused to be so subordinated. So there was a state of anarchy, leaving the final judgment to the children themselves, which authority should exist. So there existed a set of separate wills, each straining itself to the utmost to exert its own authority. Children will never naturally acquiesce to sitting in a class and submitting to knowledge. They must be compelled by a stronger, wiser will, against which will they must always strive to revolt, 
so that the first great effort of every teacher of a large class must be to bring the will of the children into accordance with his own will. And this he can only do by an abnegation of his personal self, and an application of a system of laws for the purpose of achieving a certain calculable result, the imparting of certain knowledge. Whereas Ursula thought she was going to become the first wise teacher by making the whole business personal, and using no compulsion. She believed entirely in her own personality, so that she was in a very deep mess. In the first place, she was offering to a class a relationship which only one or two of the children were sensitive enough to appreciate, so that the mass were left outsiders, therefore against her. Secondly, she was placing herself in passive antagonism to the one fixed authority of Mr. Harvey, so that the scholars could more safely harry her. She did not know, but her instinct gradually warned her. She was tortured by the voice of Mr. Brunt. On it went, jarring, harsh, full of hate, but so monotonous, it nearly drove her mad. Always the same set, harsh monotony. The man was become a mechanism, working on and on and on. But the personal man was in subdued friction all the time. It was horrible, all hate. Must she be like this? She could feel the ghastly necessity. She must become the same, put away the personal self, become an instrument, an abstraction, working upon a certain material, the class, to achieve a set purpose of making them know so much each day, and she could not submit. Yet gradually she felt the invincible iron closing upon her. The sun was being blocked out. Often when she went out at playtime and saw a luminous blue sky with changing clouds, it seemed just a fantasy, like a piece of painted scenery. Her heart was so black and tangled in the teaching, her personal self was shut in prison, abolished. She was subjugate to a bad, destructive will. How, then, could the sky be shining? There was no sky. There was no luminous atmosphere of out-of-doors. Only the inside of the school was real. Hard, concrete, real, and vicious. She would not yet, however, let school quite overcome her. She always said, It is not a permanency, it will come to an end. She could always see herself beyond the place, see the time when she had left it. On Sundays and on holidays, when she was away at Cassate, or in the woods where the beech leaves were fallen, she could think of St. Philip's Church School, and by an effort of will, put it in the picture as a dirty little low-squatting building that made a very tiny mound under the sky, while the great beech woods spread immense about her, and the afternoon was spacious and wonderful. Moreover, the children, the scholars, they were insignificant little objects, far away, oh, far away, and what power had they over her free soul? A fleeting thought of them, as she kicked her way through the beech leaves, and they were gone but her will was tense against them all the time. All the while they pursued her. She had never had such a passionate love of the beautiful things about her. Sitting on top of the tram-car at evening, sometimes school was swept away as she saw a magnificent sky settling down, and her breast, her very hands, clamored for the lovely flare of sunset. It was poignant almost to agony, her reaching for it. She almost cried aloud, seeing the sundown so lovely. For she was held away. It was no matter how she said to herself that school existed no more once she had left it. It existed. 
It was within her like a dark weight, controlling her movement. It was in vain the high-spirited, proud young girl flung off the school and its association with her. She was Miss Brangwen. She was Standard Five teacher. She had her most important being in her work now. Constantly haunting her, like a darkness hovering over her heart and threatening to swoop down over it at every moment, was the sense that somehow, somehow, she was brought down. Bitterly she denied unto herself that she was really a schoolteacher. Leave that to the violet Harbys. She herself would stand clear of the accusation. It was in vain she denied it. Within herself some recording hand seemed to point mechanically to a negation. She was incapable of fulfilling her task. She could never for a moment escape from the fatal weight of the knowledge. And so she felt inferior to Violet Harby. Miss Harby was a splendid teacher. She could keep order and inflict knowledge on a class with remarkable efficiency. It was no good Ursula's protesting to herself that she was infinitely, infinitely the superior of Violet Harby. She knew that Violet Harby succeeded where she failed, and this in a task which was almost a test of her. She felt something all the time wearing upon her, wearing her down. She went about in these first weeks trying to deny it, to say she was free as ever. She tried not to feel at a disadvantage before Miss Harvey, tried to keep up the effect of her own superiority. But a great weight was on her which Violet Harvey could bear, and she herself could not. Though she did not give in, she never succeeded. Her class was getting in worse condition. She knew herself less and less secure in teaching it. Ought she to withdraw and go home again? Ought she to say she had come to the wrong place and so retire? Her very life was at test. She went on doggedly, blindly, waiting for a crisis. Mr. Harby had now begun to persecute her. Her dread and hatred of him grew and loomed larger and larger. She was afraid he was going to bully her and destroy her. He began to persecute her because she could not keep her class in proper condition, because her class was the weak link in the chain which made up the school. One of the offences was that her class was noisy and disturbed Mr. Harvey as he took Standard 7 at the other end of the room. She was taking composition on a certain morning, walking in among the scholars. Some of the boys had dirty ears and necks. Their clothing smelled unpleasantly. But she could ignore it. She corrected the writing as she went. "'When you say their fur is brown, how do you write there?' she asked. There was a little pause. The boys were always jeeringly backward in answering. They had begun to jeer at her authority altogether. "'Please, miss, T-H-E-I-R,' spelled a lad loudly with a note of mockery. At that moment Mr. Harvey was passing. "'Stand up, Hill,' he called in a big voice. Everybody started. Ursula watched the boy. He was evidently poor and rather cunning. A stiff bit of hair stood straight off his forehead. The rest fitted close to his meagre head. He was pale and colourless. "'Who told you to call out?' thundered Mr. Harvey. The boy looked up and down with a guilty air and a cunning, cynical reserve. "'Please, sir, I was answering,' he replied with the same humble insolence. "'Go to my desk.' The boy set off down the room, the big black jacket hanging in dejected folds about him, his thin legs rather knocked at the knees, going already with the pauper's crawl, his feet in their big boots scarcely lifted. 
Ursula watched him in his crawling, slinking progress down the room. He was one of her boys. When he got to the desk, he looked round, half furtively, with a sort of cunning grin and a pathetic leer at the big boys in Standard Seven. Then, pitiable, pale in his dejected garments, he lounged under the menace of the headmaster's desk, with one thin leg crooked at the knee and the foot struck out sideways, his hands in the low-hanging pockets of his man's jacket. Ursula tried to get her attention back to the class. The boy gave her a little horror, and she was at the same time hot with pity for him. She felt she wanted to scream. She was responsible for the boy's punishment. Mr. Harvey was looking at her handwriting on the board. He turned to the class. "'Pens down!' The children put down their pens and looked up. "'Fold arms!' They pushed back their books and folded arms. Ursula, stuck among the back forms, could not extricate herself. "'What is your composition about?' asked the headmaster. Every hand shot up. "'The,' stuttered some voice in its eagerness to answer. "'I wouldn't advise you to call out,' said Mr. Harvey. He would have a pleasant voice, full and musical, but for the detestable menace that always tailed in it. He stood unmoved, his eyes twinkling under his bushy black eyebrows, watching the class. There was something fascinating in him as he stood, and again she wanted to scream. She was all jarred. She did not know what she felt. "'Well, Alice,' he said. "'The rabbit,' piped a girl's voice. "'A very easy subject for Standard Five. Ursula felt a slight shame of incompetence. She was exposed before the class, and she was tormented by the contradictoriness of everything. Mr. Harvey stood so strong and so male, with his black brows and clear forehead, the heavy jaw, the big overhanging moustache. Such a man with strength and male power, and a certain blind native beauty. She might have liked him as a man. And here he stood in some other capacity, bullying over such trifle as a boy's speaking out without permission. Yet he was not a little fussy man. He seemed to have some cruel, stubborn, evil spirit. He was imprisoned in a task too small and petty for him, which yet, in a servile acquiescence, he would fulfill, because he had to earn his living. He had no finer control over himself, only this blind, dogged, wholesale will. He would keep the job going, since he must, and this job was to make the children spell the word CAUTION correctly, and put a capital letter after a full stop. So at this he hammered with his suppressed hatred, always suppressing himself, till he was beside himself. Ursula suffered bitterly as he stood short and handsome and powerful, teaching her class. It seemed such a miserable thing for him to be doing. He had a decent, powerful, rude soul. What did he care about the composition on the rabbit? Yet his will kept him there before the class, threshing the trivial subject. It was habit with him now to be so little and vulgar, out of place. She saw the shamefulness of his position— felt the fettered wickedness in him which would blaze out into evil rage in the long run, so that he was like a persistent, strong creature, tethered. It was really intolerable. The jarring was torture to her. She looked over the silent, attentive class that seemed to have crystallized into order and rigid, neutral form. This he had it in his power to do, to crystallize the children into hard, mute fragments, fixed under his will, 
his brute will which fixed them by sheer force. She, too, must learn to subdue them to her will. She must. For it was her duty, since the school was such. He had crystallized the class into order. But to see him, a strong, powerful man, using all his power for such a purpose, seemed almost horrible. There was something hideous about it. The strange, genial light in his eye was really vicious and ugly. His smile was one of torture. He could not be impersonal. He could not have a clear, pure purpose. He could only exercise his own brute will. He did not believe in the least in the education he kept inflicting year after year upon the children. So he must bully, only bully, even while it tortured his strong, wholesome nature with shame like a spur always galling. He was so blind and ugly and out of place. Ursula could not bear it as he stood there. The whole situation was wrong and ugly. The lesson was finished. Mr. Harby went away. At the far end of the room she heard the whistle and the thud of the cane. Her heart stood still within her. She could not bear it. No, she could not bear it when the boy was beaten. It made her sick. She felt that she must go out of this school, this torture place. And she hated the schoolmaster thoroughly and finally. The brute! Had he no shame? He should never be allowed to continue the atrocity of this bullying cruelty. Then Hill came crawling back, blubbering piteously. There was something desolate about this blubbering that nearly broke her heart. For, after all, if she had kept her class in proper discipline, this would never have happened. Hill would never have called out and been caned. She began the arithmetic lesson, but she was distracted. The boy Hill sat away on the back desk, huddled up, blubbering and sucking his hand. It was a long time. She dared not go near, nor speak to him. She felt ashamed before him, and she felt she could not forgive the boy for being the huddled, blubbering object, all wet and snivelled, which he was. She went on correcting the sums, but there were too many children. She could not get round the class, and Hill was on her conscience. At last he had stopped crying and sat bunched over his hands, playing quietly. Then he looked up at her. His face was dirty with tears. His eyes had a curious washed look, like the sky after rain, a sort of wanness. He bore no malice. He had already forgotten and was waiting to be restored to the normal position. "'Go on with your work, Hill,' she said. The children were playing over their arithmetic, and, she knew, cheating thoroughly. She wrote another sum on the blackboard. She could not get round the class. She went again to the front to watch. Some were ready, some were not. What was she to do? At last it was time for recreation. She gave the order to cease working, and in some way or other got her class out of the room. Then she faced the disorderly litter of blotted, uncorrected books, of broken rulers and chewed pens, and her heart sank in sickness. The misery was getting deeper. The trouble went on and on, day after day. She had always piles of books to mark, myriads of errors to correct, a heart-wearying task that she loathed, and the work got worse and worse. When she tried to flatter herself that the composition grew more alive, more interesting, she had to see that the handwriting grew more and more slovenly, the books more filthy and disgraceful. She tried what she could, but it was of no use. But she was not going to take it seriously. Why should she? 
Why should she say to herself that it mattered if she failed to teach a class to write perfectly neatly? Why should she take the blame unto herself? Payday came, and she received four pounds, two shillings, and one penny. She was very proud that day. She had never had so much money before. And she had earned it all herself. She sat on the top of the tram-car, fingering the gold, and fearing she might lose it. She felt so established and strong because of it. And when she got home, she said to her mother, "'It is payday to-day, mother.' "'Eh?' said her mother, coolly. Then Ursula put down fifty shillings on the table. "'That is my board,' she said. "'Eh?' said her mother, letting it lie. Ursula was hurt. Yet she had paid her scot. She was free. She paid for what she had. There remained, moreover, thirty-two shillings of her own. She would not spend any. She, who was naturally a spendthrift, because she could not bear to damage her fine gold. She had a standing ground now, apart from her parents. She was something else besides the mere daughter of William and Anna Brandwin. She was independent. She earned her own living. She was an important member of the working community. She was sure that fifty shillings a month quite paid for her keep. If her mother received fifty shillings a month for each of the children, she would have twenty pounds a month and no clothes to provide. Very well, then. Ursula was independent of her parents. She now adhered elsewhere. Now the Board of Education was a phrase that rang significant to her, and she felt Whitehall far beyond her as her ultimate home. In the government she knew which minister had supreme control over education— and it seemed to her that in some way he was connected with her, as her father was connected with her. She had another self, another responsibility. She was no longer Ursula Brangwen, daughter of William Brangwen. She was also Standard Five teacher in St. Philip's School, and it was a case now of being Standard Five teacher and nothing else, for she could not escape. Neither could she succeed. That was her horror. As the weeks passed on, there was no Ursula Brandwin, free and jolly. There was only a girl of that name, obsessed by the fact that she could not manage her class of children. At weekends there came days of passionate reaction, when she went mad with the taste of liberty, when merely to be free in the morning, to sit down at her embroidery and stitch the coloured silks, was a passion of delight, for the prison-house was always awaiting her. This was only a respite, as her chained heart knew well, so that she seized hold of the swift hours of the weekend and wrung the last drop of sweetness out of them in a little cruel frenzy. She did not tell anybody how this state was a torture to her. She did not confide, either to Goodwin or to her parents, how horrible she found it to be a schoolteacher. But when Sunday night came, and she felt the Monday morning at hand, she was strung up tight with dreadful anticipation, because the strain and the torture was near again. She did not believe that she could ever teach that great brutish class in that brutal school, ever, ever. And yet, if she failed, she must in some way go under. She must admit that the man's world was too strong for her. She could not take her place in it. She must go down before Mr. Harvey, and all her life henceforth she must go on, never having freed herself of the man's world, never having achieved the freedom of the great world of responsible work. Maggie had taken her place there. She had even stood level with Mr. Harvey, and got free of him, 
and her soul was always wandering in far-off valleys and glades of poetry. Maggie was free, yet there was something like subjection in Maggie's very freedom. Mr. Harvey the man disliked the reserved woman, Maggie. Mr. Harvey the schoolmaster respected his teacher, Miss Schofield. For the present, however, Ursula only envied and admired Maggie. She herself had still to get where Maggie had got. She had still to make her footing. She had taken up a position on Mr. Harvey's ground, and she must keep it. For he was now beginning a regular attack on her, to drive her away out of his school. She could not keep order. Her class was a turbulent crowd, and the weak spot in the school's work. Therefore she must go, and someone more useful must come in her place, someone who could keep discipline. The headmaster had worked himself into an obsession of fury against her. He only wanted her gone. She had come, she had got worse as the weeks went on. She was absolutely no good. His system, which was his very life in school, the outcome of his bodily movement, was attacked and threatened at the point where Ursula was included. She was the danger that threatened his body with a blow, a fall, and blindly, thoroughly, moving from strong instinct of opposition, he set to work to expel her. When he punished one of her children, as he had punished the boy Hill, for an offence against himself, he made the punishment extra heavy with the significance that the extra stroke came in because of the weak teacher who allowed all these things to be. When he punished for an offence against her, he punished lightly, as if offences against her were not significant, which all the children knew, and they behaved accordingly. Every now and again Mr. Harvey would swoop down to examine exercise books. For a whole hour he would be going round the class, taking book after book, comparing page after page, whilst Ursula stood aside for all the remarks and fault-finding to be pointed at her through the scholars. It was true, since she had come, the composition books had grown more and more untidy, disorderly, filthy. Mr. Harvey pointed to the pages done before her regime, and to those done after, and fell into a passion of rage. Many children he sent out to the front with their books, and after he had thoroughly gone through the silent and quivering class, he caned the worst offenders well, in front of the others, thundering in real passion of anger and chagrin. "'Such a condition in a class! I can't believe it! It is simply disgraceful! I can't think how you have been let to get like it! Every Monday morning I shall come down and examine these books, so don't think that because there is nobody paying any attention to you that you are free to unlearn everything you ever learned and go back till you are not fit for Standard Three. I shall examine all books every Monday.' Then, in a rage, he went away with his cane, leaving Ursula to confront a pale, quivering class whose childish faces were shut in blank resentment, fear, and bitterness, whose souls were full of anger and contempt for her rather than of the master, whose eyes looked at her with the cold, inhuman accusation of children, and she could hardly make mechanical words to speak to them. When she gave an order, they obeyed with an insolent off-handedness, as if to say, "'As for you, do you think we would obey you but for the master?' She sent the blubbering, caned boys to their seats, knowing that they too jeered at her and her authority, holding her weakness responsible for what punishment had overtaken them. And she knew the whole position, so that even her horror of physical beating and suffering sank to a deeper pain, and became a moral judgment upon her worse than any hurt. 
She must, during the next week, watch over her books, and punish any fault. Her soul decided it coldly. Her personal desire was dead for that day at least. She must have nothing more of herself in school. She was to be Standard Five teacher only. That was her duty. In school she was nothing but Standard Five teacher. Ursula Brangwen must be excluded. So that pale, shut, at last distant and impersonal, she saw no longer the child, how his eyes danced, or how he had a queer little soul that could not be bothered with shaping handwriting, so long as he dashed down what he thought. She saw no children, only the task that was to be done, and keeping her eyes there, on the task and not on the child, she was impersonal enough to punish where she could otherwise only have sympathized, understood and condoned, to approve where she would have been merely uninterested before. But her interest had no place any more. It was agony to the impulsive bright girl of seventeen to become distant and official, having no personal relationship with the children. For a few days, after the agony of the Monday, she succeeded, and had some success with her class. But it was a state not natural to her, and she began to relax. Then came another infliction. There were not enough pens to go round the class. She sent to Mr. Harvey for more. He came in person. "'Not enough pens, Miss Brangwen?' he said, with a smile and calm of exceeding rage against her. "'No, we are six short,' she said, quaking. "'Oh, how is that?' he said menacingly. Then, looking over the class, he asked, "'How many are there here to-day?' Fifty two, said Ursula. But he did not take any notice, counting for himself. Fifty two, he said. "'And how many pens are there, Staples?' Ursula was now silent. He would not heed her if she answered, since he had addressed the monitor. "'That's a very curious thing,' said Mr. Harvey, looking over the silent class with a slight grin of fury. All the childish faces looked up at him, blank and exposed. "'A few days ago there were sixty pens for this class. Now there are forty-eight. What is forty-eight from sixty, Williams?' There was a sinister suspense in the question. A thin, ferret-faced boy in a sailor-suit started up exaggeratedly. "'Please, sir,' he said. Then a slow, sly grin came over his face. He did not know. There was a tense silence. The boy dropped his head. Then he looked up again, a little cunning triumph in his eyes. Twelve, he said. "'I would advise you to attend,' said the headmaster dangerously. The boy sat down. Forty-eight from sixty is twelve. So there are twelve pens to account for. Have you looked for them, Staples?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then look again.' The scene dragged on. Two pens were found. Ten were missing. Then the storm burst. "'Am I to have you thieving, besides your dirt and bad work and bad behaviour? the headmaster began. "'Not content with being the worst-behaved and dirtiest class in the school, you are thieves into the bargain, are you? "'It is a very funny thing. Pens don't melt into the air. Pens are not in the habit of mizzling away into nothing. What has become of them, then? They must be somewhere. What has become of them? For they must be found, and found by Standard Five. They were lost by Standard Five, and they must be found. Ursula stood and listened, her heart hard and cold. She was so much upset that she felt almost mad. Something in her tempted her to turn on the headmaster and tell him to stop about the miserable pens. 
but she did not, she could not. After every session, morning and evening, she had the pens counted. Still they were missing, and pencils and India rubbers disappeared. She kept the class staying behind till the things were found, but as soon as Mr. Harvey had gone out of the room, the boys began to jump about and shout, and at last they bolted in a body from the school. This was drawing near a crisis. She could not tell Mr. Harvey, because, while he would punish the class, he would make her the cause of the punishment, and her class would pay her back with disobedience and derision. Already there was a deadly hostility grown up between her and the children. After keeping in the class at evening to finish some work, she would find boys dodging behind her, calling after her, Brangwen, Brangwen, proud acre. When she went into Ilkston on a Saturday morning with Goodwin, she heard again the voices yelling after her, Brangwen, Brangwen. She pretended to take no notice, but she colored with shame at being held up to derision in the public street. She, Ursula Brangwen of Cossethay, could not escape from the Standard Five teacher which she was. In vain she went out to buy ribbon for her hat. They called after her, the boys she tried to teach. And one evening, as she went from the edge of the town into the country, stones came flying at her. Then the passion of shame and anger surpassed her. She walked on unheeding beside herself. Because of the darkness she could not see who were those that threw, but she did not want to know. Only in her soul a change took place. Never more and never more would she give herself as individual to her class. Never would she, Ursula Brangwen, the girl she was, the person she was, come into contact with those boys. She would be Standard Five teacher, as far away personally from her class as if she had never set foot in St. Philip's school. She would just obliterate them all and keep herself apart, take them as scholars only. So her face grew more and more shut, and over her flayed, exposed soul of a young girl who had gone open and warm to give herself to the children, there sat a hard, insentient thing that worked mechanically according to a system imposed. It seemed she scarcely saw her class the next day. She could only feel her will, and what she would have of this class which she must grasp into subjection. It was no good any more to appeal, to play upon the better feelings of the class. Her swift-working soul realized this. She, as teacher, must bring them all as scholars into subjection, and this she was going to do. All else she would forsake. She had become hard and impersonal, almost vengeful on herself as well as on them, since the stone-throwing. She did not want to be a person, to be herself any more after such humiliation. She would assert herself for mastery, be only teacher— she was set now. She was going to fight and subdue. She knew by now her enemies in the class. The one she hated most was Williams. He was a sort of defective, not bad enough to be so classed. He could read with fluency, and had plenty of cunning intelligence. But he could not keep still, and he had a kind of sickness very repulsive to a sensitive girl, something cunning and edulated and degenerate. Once he had thrown an inkwell at her, in one of his mad little rages, twice he had run home out of class. He was a well-known character. And he grinned up his sleeve at this girl-teacher, sometimes hanging round her to fawn on her. But this made her dislike him more. He had a kind of leech-like power. From one of the children she took a supple cane, 
and this she determined to use when real occasion came. One morning at composition she said to the boy Williams, "'Why have you made this blot?' "'Please, miss, it fell off my pen,' he whined out in the mocking voice that he was so clever in using. The boy's near snorted with laughter, for Williams was an actor. He could tickle the feelings of his hearers subtly. Particularly he could tickle the children with him into ridiculing his teacher, or indeed any authority of which he was not afraid. He had that peculiar jail instinct. "'Then you must stay in and finish another page of composition,' said the teacher. This was against her usual sense of justice, and the boy resented it derisively. At twelve o'clock she caught him slinking out. "'Williams, sit down,' she said. And there she sat, and there he sat, alone, opposite to her, on the back desk, looking up at her with his furtive eyes every minute. "'Please, miss, I've got to go an errand,' he called out insolently. "'Bring me your book,' said Ursula. The boy came out, flapping his book along the desks. He had not written a line. "'Go back and do the writing you have to do,' said Ursula, and she sat at her desk trying to correct books. She was trembling and upset, and for an hour the miserable boy writhed and grinned in his seat. At the end of that time he had done five lines. "'As it is so late now,' said Ursula, "'you will finish the rest this evening.' The boy kicked his way insolently down the passage. End of chapter 13, part 3